Hold the Line with Mike Solon is brought to you by the Seattle Police Officers Guild, Seattle's public safety voice. And by Heart to Heart Medical Supply. Heart to Heart is an American company providing FDA-registered respirator masks at the lowest prices. Right now, KN95 masks are just 49 cents each, and three-ply surgical-style masks are only 20 cents each. Use the promo code HOLD5 at checkout to receive an additional 5% off your order. Visit hearttoheart.com. That's H-A-R-T, the number two, H-A-R-T dot com. Heart to Heart, where great masks are just a click away. Many, many organizations create Amazon wish lists for the unhoused. So now they get to use their government phone to go online and create an Amazon wish list, and packages are now being delivered tent side. They just. What? Yeah. It's far, no farther. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish. Not a fight. Hey, welcome back to Hold the Line with Mike Solon. Back by popular demand because we had such a raving success of part one to the homeless industrial complex here in Seattle is We Heart Seattle. I can tell you that it's an absolute pleasure having Andrea and Kevin back on because the feedback from part one of the Homeless Industrial Complex podcast, I think has been pretty profound. And we thought that it would be good since it's roughly close to that time when we released it several weeks ago to bring you guys back in and um, credit to you because this is all about you guys. And um, welcome back. Thanks for agreeing to come back because we barely scratched the surface last time we were on it and uh, on the topic, I should say. And um, that podcast got some traction. And I think we're going to have another robust conversation that really pulls the curtain back even more on the homeless issue impacting, for the most part, the West Coast, but particularly here in Seattle and in Portland, right? So, hey, Andrea, welcome back. Hey, Mike, thank you. <laughs> Kevin, thank you, my man. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's too great. late. It's great to have you. So, I mean, some of the um, some of the feedback, and I'm sure you guys have it too, is just what the previous episode touched on, um, and we'll have a link in the description as well, is that we uncovered some dirty secrets, if you will. And I kind of talked about the corruption side of it. And I was a little bit apprehensive to bring that word up. I still am because I don't want to accuse people of impropriety or breaking the law without a full investigation and their due process. Um, But it's quite clear based upon the feedback we got from the last time we sat down is that the homeless industrial complex, the homeless problem is not being solved. And here you guys are trying to solve it outside of what is formally being done in this city. And you've received some significant pushback. But I think more importantly, it's been overwhelmingly positive. And that's, I think, you know, is the focus of this conversation today is, yeah, we'll touch on a little bit of the negativity because that's relevant. But the positivity from this is, uh, is incredible. So, um, a couple issues that I was told to bring up based upon the feedback from the audience is that there's no accountability with the homeless issue. Uh, it's a partisan approach, bringing in politics to this. And there's more money 
that is treating the problem rather than solving it. And that's the feedback I got since the last time we talked. So let's get into it. Um, because homelessness is, you know, at this level is, it's kind of a new issue. We sat down and talked prior to the episode is that it just seems that, you know, in the past 10 years, major urban cities such as Seattle and Portland and the West Coast, it's absolutely exploded. So I just wanted to have that start off the conversation because you guys are the subject matter experts. I'm the guy here via public safety representing cops at a labor level that are being impacted by these encampments, the politics surrounding that, the working condition issues in terms of biohazards, they can get poked by a needle. Um, There's, you know, there's all sorts of issues that they can bring home to the families too, as being an employee, a police officer. So just kind of wanted to expand that and to have you guys start the conversation versus me blab on. Great opening. Thank you for having us back. Yeah, my pleasure. So it's been about a decade, I would agree. I mean, I, I, I would present to you and wonder if you agree on it, that we've seen the homelessness explode. We got into why you started this back in part one. People can check it out if they haven't seen it before, but Let's expand on that, Kevin. I mean, I'm bring in the conversation in terms of why do we think in the past 10 years this situation is absolutely out of control? Well, I've worked <clears throat> in homeless services over 20 years. So I was there in the beginning when it wasn't that bad at all. It was a relatively manageable job. Um, my focus my experience is primarily was in Portland, Oregon. And back in the day, late 80s, early 90s, to work with the homeless population, we would go to one very specific part of town known as um, Old Town Portland, which is downtown Portland, Oregon. And that's where a high percentage of the homeless were. They were not in the parks. They were not in the trails, the Springwater Corridor. Um, they were not on the sidewalks. They were really no other public spaces. They were simply in this very small area. It was about a 10-block radius. That is where we went to either bring them food, do outreach, whatever. What I saw was a shift 10 to 12 years ago while I was working professionally in homeless services. And at the time, I was working at a men's homeless shelter, and I was there for seven years. And I watched... As year after year, I would see the same clientele. I kept thinking, and I was still relatively new at this. I was younger. This is 90s, early 2000s, Yeah, 20 plus years ago. You pull that mic a little bit closer to you. Sorry. Mic. No, you don't need to lean over. Just pull it up to you. There you go. So, you know, again, this was a good 20 years ago. Yeah. And I started seeing the same clients over and over again. I kept started asking my supervisors and myself, aren't we supposed to solve this and then move on to the next person? But we're seeing the same clientele over and over again. And so by year five, everyone I saw in year one was still in the shelter over and over and over again. I'm like, well, are we actually making any kind of difference? And what I tell people too, is I feel like I was part of the problem in the beginning because I didn't know better. I went to college. I was idealistic. I wanted to change the world. I got a job in nonprofits I want to work with the homeless and get them in housing. And it just felt very empowering. But over the years, I started getting really frustrated and almost embarrassed to talk about what I was doing because nothing was getting done. 
And I couldn't understand why. But when you talk about you wanted to make a dis- difference, you're idealistic, but I would say naive. Uh, yes, yeah. I was naive. And to be honest, poorly trained. Okay. So like, but what does make a difference look like to you? Make a difference for me was I'm working with a ho- homeless person. Let's get them off the streets. Let's get them in the housing, get them supportive care. Because the fact is, even then, I knew there was, uh, they would never get their needs met on the street. And so that was my focus. Like, what can we do? But there was this system, the way it was set up back in the day, uh, there was no safety net. Really what was being built are these shelters to temporarily house them with almost virtually no options to transition off the streets. And so they would go to the shelter for a few months at a time and a high percentage would return to the streets. The moment they returned to the streets, they would get back on the wait list to return to the shelter. And it happened over and over and over again. And I'm thinking, gosh, as this population grows and more people move to the city because we were kind of known as a city, they gave a lot of handouts. What do you mean by like a lot of handouts? Uh lot of different nonprofits and church groups and just different stakeholders and um, neighborhood associations, whatever, would start delivering food, socks, underwear, things like this, kind of more basic needs to the homeless population. Got it. Now, what I also saw year after year is the wait list continued to grow because more and more people are arriving, but we weren't actually solving the problem, which means more more people were needing this so, program. So what kind of services were at the shelter? So like, it's almost like, do you get there, do you go there just for, uh, you know, shower, bed, and meals? Or is, it, is, there, is, there, is there drug treatment, alcohol treatment, what have you? There was not. There was really none of that. There was case managers there, but they had limitations. And due to budget limitations too, there was not much they could offer. And so, sure, there was always a handful of people going to the shelter who really wanted off the streets, and there was not a lot of ways we could help them because um, there was the budget limitations made it almost impossible for us to do our job. So even if we tr- tried to, we almost couldn't. Mm. Now, when I th- you think about every year as the wait list grows, back in the day, it took about one week to get into a three-month program, which is pretty good. Five years Later, the wait list was six to seven months. Because of the demand. Yes. And when there's demand, the next logical solution is to then add another shelter. So the program I used to work many years ago had three shelters. Now they have approximately 15. And we talked about in our last podcast, what once was a cause feels like now a multi-million dollar industry. So as the wait list grows, there becomes then for a demand and a reason to request more money for more programs. But if we're not solving the problem, there's this revolving door over and over and over again, and the wait list keeps growing. I saw over time, that's when I started feeling really dirty. Like, what am I a part of here? Right. And so every year it really exploded. And so then again, jump up, jump ahead to about 10 years ago. Um, Massive amount of funding was going towards homeless services because everyone was like, oh my gosh, we got to, um, we got to stop this. You know, we, you know, a lot of good people, a lot of, even a lot of good politicians really wanted to try to make a difference. And 
we're committing 30, 40 million dollars here and there. But problem is, is the <laughs> we were relying on the people who had got us into this mess in the first hand to then manage this whole problem. And so then jump ahead another 10 years to like this year, it's gotten now four or five times worse because we still to this day rely on the wrong people. And that is the industry. The, the, so the, the homeless industrial complex, the industry, is yes. that what you're referring to? Yep. So, okay, so it's not just specific to Seattle. We're talking about West Coast or Pacific Northwest more specifically. Yep. The, the people that represent maybe, what would it be, the government interest or people that are part of the, at least managing services? Maybe that's a better way yep. to put it. Now, we had a real opportunity 10 years ago to identify immediate permanent solutions for everybody, right? Put up a lot of money up front and just like basically end homelessness in every major city once and for all quickly. But because that system wasn't really in place to help people with the mental health, the chemical dependency, the permanent housing, the wraparound type care, the system decided to put more of their money into keeping the homeless more comfortable on the streets because they couldn't identify the permanent solutions. So they've worked on the temporary ones. The, well, let's form an outreach team to hand out tents and tarps and food and socks and underwear, right? Without any other. What became known as the theory of harm reduction. Yes. Which is. Yeah, so the, but the harm, harm reduction for whom? The houseless, the homeless? That was the only focus. Yeah. Right? They weren't looking at it holistically in terms of harm reduction for society because there's impacts to keeping people Everybody. where they're at. Right, The most marginalized population is also impacted by keeping unhoused, mentally uh, unstable, addicted on the streets next to schools, retirement homes, playgrounds, etc. So harm reduction was became the new theory, just keep people where they're at and more and more money Kevin's point was being channeled to keeping people where they're at and why we've been criticized because what are you doing? You know, leave people where they're at. They're not ready. They're not ready to talk about treatment. They're not ready to talk about employment. And that I think is the other thing that happened 10 years ago. And I'm not the expert. I'm learning from Kevin boots on the ground as well. What I see, but there was this constant missing link of empowerment versus enablement. There wasn't enough programming to say, if you are going to be in the shelter, here are things for you to do all day. And I'd like to get into that at some point of yeah, we will. why are there still, there seems to be 15 shelters, hundreds of shelters, thousands of hotel rooms, thousands of tiny house villages. Available. Available. But the, the tents, the blight, the garbage, Remain. the inflow still is in. The inflow meaning the, the, the like you, what you said, 12 years ago, the same faces. Well, well and new people new now, people now drawing the to the West Coast because of our allowable, enabling, service-providing, endless budget for you can survive here yep. without a job, without and, having to do anything And these at teams all. were so effective, so good at their job, every day going to the tents, the homeless over years started getting used to it. Well, I'm going to have hot soup delivered to me. I'm going to get anything I need. I can make a request and it'll be there within 24 hours. The overabundance of free stuff makes it easier now, to, be, to live yeah, with what you're now, living in. And 
this in many ways has created dependency. Where well, now they, were, they rely on these type of services. And here we are 2022 in the world, in the e-commerce world where you can now, many, many organizations create Amazon wish lists for the unhoused. So now they get to use their government phone to go online and create an Amazon wish list and packages are now being delivered tent side. They just, what? And you can request almost anything on these Amazon wish lists, and you're virtually guaranteed to get it. But you got to put an address there. Is it like a park? Yes. So I'm getting into the weeds of this still, but just like my condo, I can say I live, this is yeah. my address, this is my unit. unit. Here are my special instructions. Leave the package at the front credenza. Leave the got package it. at my beloved human being that lives just at my doorstep in the red tent. I can give that delivery or, instruction to Amazon. Amazon is delivering packages or tent side sometimes on Second Avenue. Outreach workers will just go to the tent, introduce themselves, be like, "We have an Amazon wish list. Let's do this now." And the very next day, you know, Amazon's very you know, efficient, and you can get things almost immediately. But that, like, the, the evolution of enablement so, has gone from well-intended, well-intended donations, uh, even well-intended harm reduction to the homeless unhoused having access to the internet and creating their own Amazon wish lists. I refuse to do it. You know, I mean, I could, someone's like, why don't you do that? And then have, you know, if you need something for someone that just got an apartment even. I'm like, no, let's just do it old school for a while. Well, and and I met someone months ago who did the Amazon wish list and he requested a laptop because he was looking for a job. He got his laptop. He was not looking for a job. But he did get $200 for that laptop. So he turned it around to someone else. He flipped it. He flipped it quickly, not to another homeless person, but to someone else he knows. And once word spread, everyone started requesting electronics. I need a job. I want this. Or I need steel-toed boots because of this job I got. But sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's You don't really know whether it's truthful or not. So when does it stop? I mean, what's the next thing they're going to request? Right. Well, cash app, cash app, cash app. I have Car, a, cars are popular now that you can request a car and get cars. And I've, I've had a guy, here's my turned in loaded syringes. We got him into a, pro, a housing or a, sorry, reentry program. He went into a clean and sober house. He progressed. Hey, I need $50. Can you cash app? I'm at Fred Meyer. I need some socks. So, okay. You know, you're progressing, but the cash app then all of a sudden added this friction free, able enablement to so he can cut it out right you know, just yeah do his own and i was thing. like that's easy and then I'm like okay all of a sudden people are just put, putting their cash app on their tents this is my cash app and i can go by and just give them five dollars so that th- th- goes back to what you were discussing it's like there were so many things that they could get that's the revolving door of it being comfortable to a degree i'm not being flippant on that it's just it's a lifestyle that they're accustomed to they get all of this free stuff to make their lives more comfortable. But it's the revolving door that leads to the influx, which leads to here we are on year 10 of a significant issue that has exploded out of control. And you can't really blame them. They're in a situation and, you know, it's an opportunity. We really need to blame the system that is allowing this to happen. And the system is also society, kind of rethink how you can help somebody 
if you really want to help somebody, go ask them for their name, specifically yeah. what their needs are. Let's go have a conversation. Yeah, because we got into that a little bit, I think, you know, in, in part one of this was if you were to give advice to people, what would it be? And then, you, you know, we talked about the food, just lasagna, the frozen stuff. It's like you got to put it on the individual person in society who to a degree is comfortable in their own dwelling, right? Roof over their head, meals, showers, what have you, but seem to be immersed in leading a reasonable life, uh, reasonable meaning that they understand there's consequences to their life choices, right? Otherwise they can't pay the bills, but then they'll be out of their dwelling and then they'll be on the street and then it becomes a revolving door. But it's almost now we've completely exposed to where it's accepted to not have that kind of societal value of trying to work hard to get a house, raise a family. And now it's, here's your life, make it for what it is. And there's no checks and balances or accountability to your choices. People will just give you stuff and you just keep on continuing. And then we have people flocking to this region. Would you, would, it, would that be a good way to kind of capture the conversation? Absolutely. 100%. It's also another reason why we see so many tents is person in Seattle gets placed in a housing apartment motel, but they still go to their day tent because then they can still play that game. Amazon wish list, receive food and stuff and just do their thing. So it's their day job. And then their job and then go home to their apartment. And what Andrew and I have really unintentionally exposed <laughs> was a lot of people with tents in Seattle have places to live. And that's how do you how do you get that information? Just by connecting we, with with the, the, the homeless? Nine times out of ten, they will tell us they they have nothing to hide because they're not gonna get in trouble for it. It's, it's being out there every single day mm -hmm. in the same encampments, regularly seeing the patterns. Kind of talked about that last time. Yeah. Um, but it is an industry. You know, there's the homeless industrial complex, but there's the industry of the folks saying, gosh, I don't have to really work anymore because I can flip potentially thousands of dollars of donations. I like the way you put that. So it's it's two. You have the, uh, uh, the service interest that gets all of these millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. That's the homeless industrial complex. Mm -hmm. But there's the homeless industrial complex with the homeless themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's a, almost a two-tiered approach on the same level. It's 100% a thing. Um, there's wow. a, a woman that supports, she's a, a leader of a mutual aid group, and uh, somebody we got off the streets referred to her as Santa Claus. You could ask her for anything, laptops, cell phones, barbecues, tents, Patagonia jackets and she was a I don't know wealthy once realtor I don't really know her backstory but she really took after the particular camp at Ballard Commons which of course is very popular and now re, uh, restored but uh, it came down to those Amazon wish lists I've seen people come through parks right after a big donation came through from well-intended providers mutual aid church groups and folks came right behind and went through and bought everything that was a value right behind and took them to where to their offer up or fencing market. Oh my gosh. Um, just on a really one-off thing, a really wonderful woman gave me a bag of beautiful women's Patagonia jackets, a vest matching jacket. I gave it to a young woman who we got into a tiny house. I saw her, 
walk away in her beautiful Patagonia. And the next day, I'm like, where's all your clothes I gave you? You're freezing again. She goes, oh, I sold them. <laughs> you know? But and why I, are they, well, like, let's just, why are they selling them? Is it to feed their addiction? Yes, because you can get food all over the city and you, she also now had housing. So the only reason for her to sell the jacket is to support her drug addiction, which I don't judge, I don't shame. I'm just saying if you really want to help somebody think about what you're doing. Because it's bigger than you just giving something to them. They're going to, they're going to fence it Mm -hmm. for their own addiction purposes. And we talked a little bit about this before we started something I've been obsessed of lately of getting a data point on is, you know, why are people not willing to go sign up for work anymore? What happened to work as a virtue, working employment, contribute to the economic society. Um, and been asking a lot of people, you know, do you have children? Yeah. Do you have a child debt that you owe? Yeah. So do you choose not to work because you're escaping a very big debt? Maybe you're not making a lot of money only to have 70% of your check go to garnished garnished. And, you know, I have people on my team that talk about, I can't get my driver's license because I owe $18,000. I can't get a apartment because I have child support debt. And it's a, I feel like it's a big elephant in the room that nobody's talking about that debt is a big reason that people stay on the streets. And in Seattle, in Portland, in San Francisco, and L.A., you can come here because of way too far pro- progressive politics and live easily. That's the term. I can live easily here. I won't go to prison if I commit crimes to get by. But why are you choosing this to begin with? The debt. There's $10 billion in unpaid child support debt in this country. I- and this is I'm kind of speechless as far as <laughs> this is this, this is just bigger than people realize is what we're exposing. Mm-hmm. And this is a perfect example. You can't solve a problem unless you understand the problem. Right? And to understand it, you have to be out there every day, boots on the ground, getting to know them, learning their stories, building that trust. Once they trust you and respect you, they'll tell you everything. Yeah. We talked about that in podcast. It's huge. One. And what we're learning, I just wish, you know, we're, we're here also just to encourage and inspire other people to do the same thing. You have to understand them. What's going on? What, what are the real reasons behind this? Okay, so you basically, that message, what you guys are just are saying is to the people that aren't homeless, that go to work, pay their bills, that not speaking for them, but what I see sometimes is driving around, people hand them food or some money. You know, they think that that's their advocacy, which is cool, man. You want to do that. But what we're saying is, is that this is bigger and that you're basically enabling the problem. Absolutely. Right? High percentage of time is absolutely enabling. They're doing it. They're not part of the system and it feels good. So that go, you know, we go into that and uh, there's been some court cases, obviously one in Idaho that you told me about. And what is it? What is it? Like a 32 page, 36 page document. And it's for those that want to read up on it. And we'll have a link in the description. It's uh, Martin versus Boise, Idaho. 
And uh, it basically encapsulates the jurisdiction cannot prosecute homeless individuals for involuntarily sitting, lying, that means like lying on the ground, and sleeping in public as long as there is no option for sleeping indoors. Yes. Meaning you can't enforce anything because there's an option there, right? Correct. And this was an absolutely ethical thing to do. We all agree. If a person wants housing and is on the streets and needs housing, don't prosecute them. You know, don't make it more uncomfortable. We 100% agree. If a homeless person was legitimately wants off the street, we do everything we can to help them. The problem I've seen with Martin versus Boise is it's oftentimes misunderstood. By whom? Most cities. Most cities interpret this as saying, oh, this is the uh, um, um, anti-no-camping law, which means we can't do anything. We're stuck here. You know, we, we just have to stop all efforts of enforcing camping in any public spaces. This is the way they interpret it. You read what's actually going on out of the 36-plus pages. That really summarizes it. And this law came about in 2007, when seven homeless people in Boise, Idaho sued because they were forcibly moved from a public space stating we have nowhere else to go. So it kind of is around the timeline that we discussed earlier, yep. as far as it being around 10, 12 years, right? Yep. It yep. falls in line where this thing's really exploded. hundred percent. And it's and the frustration. People are like, why doesn't the city do anything? Yeah. Why can't the government just say you can't live in a park or shared space or sidewalk? And this is the ruling, which we believe is taken too far into the letter of the law. It's actually, and then so let you go into well, that. And then but. what you hear a lot is, you know, no one knows how many homeless are in Seattle. They don't, but I've heard numbers all over the place from 5,000 to 12,000. And now there's a new interpretation, which could be up to 40,000. Yeah. And people are scared because of those big numbers thinking, well, how is the city going to afford 15, 20,000 units, right? It's going to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Correct. What this law simply says is that you have to offer the alternative. The question is, what happens if they turn down the housing? Does that satisfy the, the Martin versus Boise ruling? If we've made every effort possible to get them off the streets. And you document it, I'm and assuming. Document and made effort, effort even 10 times in a row. Eventually, should there not be some kind of enforcement of like, you can't be in this park because you do have an alternative. And so what does that look like as far as enforcement? That becomes a police interest then. Which because we, you represent the government interest, and then what other entity will enforce that? And while you always want to avoid doing that, the fact is, is in my experience, the biggest challenge in my career isn't in identifying housing, but getting people to accept it. Accept housing? Yes. Explain that. It's been, it's a very challenging part of the job is working with this very complex population is getting them to transition off the streets into housing. And there's a variety of reasons why they are resistant. Certainly one of the bigger ones is just a strong mistrust in the system that has possibly let them down due to grant limitations or lack of flexibility or loss of funding or simply bad case management. They've given up and said, I'm not going to try anymore. This sucks. And then back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, 
is this industry has kept them extremely comfortable on the streets. There's virtually no motivation to make any effort to get off the streets. So when they're saying no, it's not that they're trying to be difficult. They're just possibly thinking, why try anymore, right? Or this is, things are kind of too good right now. And we kind of maybe need to just kind of flip that script and just kind of be better at we, what we do on our end, meaning social workers, <laughs> case managers, outreach workers, uh, to get people to want to accept housing. Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by StopDefunding.com. The senseless trend of defunding police departments must be stopped. Over 200,000 reasonable citizens have already signed our petition, and we need your help. Visit StopDefunding.com and add your signature to help us protect public safety. Now more than ever, our voices must be heard. Speak up at StopDefunding.com. So that they... That brings in, I think this is a good time to bring in like the police angle of this, right? And I, I mentioned about working conditions, officers stepping on needles, getting poked, what have you. The, uh, the optics of armed police going in to harass homeless people who are just destitute down on their luck. What, what government interest does it have for police to do that? And I think what you're just saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is... You, know, you need to have the police at, at least present for somebody who's absolutely out of control for safety yep. issues, right? And as long as you've got some type of legal recourse for the officer to fall back on, which gives them the constitutional authority to take away somebody's freedom to a degree and arrest them, right? But the step that you're doing, and you, you weigh in, Kevin and Andrea, that the social services, the people with the acumen, such as yourself to a degree, can be the stopgap before police have to get there, right? Yes. Because, because why? Because you develop that trust with people? Yes. Yeah. Develop trust through the model of cleaning as a basic need and as harm reduction, cleaning up garbage and rats and needles around a tent removes rot and waste and disease. So that we do believe waste, waste removal, what our initial mission to set out is harm reduction. Build the trust and lack of a better way, talk them into services. You know, hey, trust me, I can lead you down to a path for addiction treatment. I can lead you down a path to reconnect you with family. You have children. Why don't we call them today? You know, you have a grandmother. Let's go sit on that bench and call your family and reconnect you. How about this shelter? Just trust me. You don't have to stay there forever. But let me give you this example of a woman who did go to that shelter and now has a fully furnished apartment because she trusted the system. You know, so that is why outreach exists and being able to assert yourself. I think it's a good time to bring in an example of what you've accomplished in terms of making those connections where people are trusting your, your work. And, uh, it's a short two minute clip and, uh, this guy, uh, identifies himself and I'm assuming he's talking to you. Yeah, it's Josh. And then uh, we'll uh, we'll break it down from there. You okay if I play this? Yeah. And who who you are within in that circle? Okay. Um, I, I, I Josh. I'm sorry. No, they're not. 
Uh, my name is Josh. I'm uh, back again. I just wanted to uh, give a little information and a little testimony about the drug problem and the and going through Seattle in this community as well. Um, you know, it's a it, it's a major problem, especially for people out here right now. Um, it's part of the reason a lot of people are out here, and part of a reason that people aren't ever going to get out of here. Um, you know, it's. We, they get very few opportunities for help or treatment as far as inpatient kind of help goes, which is kind of what you would need um, to get off it because you need time away and out of this environment and in a place where you feel safe and you can stay off of it and you get the help you need. Do you need. think Seattle offers that help to, to longer term treatment Absolute, to no, get off drugs? I think Seattle offers a lot of um, Suboxone and a lot of methadone. And all those are our other drugs replacing drugs. So that's part of this, and we'll let it play out in just a second, but... He's describing with his own experience, you're showing that you've got the courage to go into these camps that you actually care about people. There's a huge plate of food in front of him. He seems somewhat clean, right? I mean, he seems with it. Yeah. And he's describing that there's all sorts of other drugs that basically enable an addict's addiction, which keeps the system the perpetual cycle, right? Yep. He's living in Denny Park. Um, he couldn't shake me. I'm like, I'm coming here every day. And we built trust. And I never gave him a sandwich or a clean needle or socks or what anything. What did you give him? I gave him a clean camp. And I kept asking him, what, how can we connect him to different services? But I wasn't bringing cookers and tourniquets and needles. And there's something about our, us being anti-enablement. The homeless are like, thank you for not encouraging me. He le- he felt love for the first time in working with our We Heart Seattle volunteers. Giving him a clean needle and more free food and coddling him and treating him like infants. When he could go to many other places to get food, he's just served in his crib. And that that's the, so important is just like raising children. Raising animals, holding people accountable, they thrive. And, you know, he goes on to talk about a little taste of sobriety in King County Jail is the best thing you can do to get me maybe to take that next step towards sobriety. We ended up getting Josh into an enhanced shelter. He's still there. He still calls me every once in a while. I see him on the streets every once in a while, but I know he's not in a tent anymore. That's pretty powerful. I'm going to let it play out. And he wraps it up. You got about a, another minute to go with Josh. You know, I mean, in my thinking, uh, why why give up one drug for another? One might be legal and one might be not, but their uh, their purpose is the same. As a user, uh, what would you, your solution be? To, and you're, I know you're a light user, but what do you think Seattle could, our taxpayer dollars should be spent on to help people that can't get out of the drug use? Inpatient treatment, and honestly, like the whole idea of defunding the police. It sound crazy coming from me, but I, I think it's the worst idea they've ever had. Um, I think that they actually need to do something. Um, and instead of walking by people they see using drugs and letting them use them, I think they need to they, they, they need to they need to arrest them. They need to start showing them that you know even I, I'm not saying put them in prison for minor drug use, but you know you, you, it's a real wake up call um, when you go do 30 days in county jail. And, and but you get maybe you get an offer for your help while you're in there too, and when you leave, you go to inpatient treatment and you have the option. Now you have some clean time under your belt, you know, and you get to go to treatment with a clear head. I mean, so I mean that's honestly that's what they should be doing. I mean, like they should. Uh, 
Thank you. It's, and how long are you? are never going to get clean without the, without the treatment, but yeah. it, so few people can afford it and can just go, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that they just don't. I mean, yeah. and it's... That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. That's from somebody who has experience, right? He's part of that tier of the homeless complex, if you will. Yeah. He's but, a heroin addict. He steals all day to support his habit. He knows he can get away with it. He's, you know, we're killing people. And he's a white man, but the politics and policies are actually, and I've read a lot of uh, different journals on this, that we're killing actually our BIPOC and most marginalized homeless population at a higher rate than our stronger white privileged. That's what the data is showing? Yeah. So, Why do you think that is, Andrea? Well, African-Americans are more susceptible for, for, to various diseases. Youth haven't been out on the streets long enough to survive the streets, um, as two examples, you know, and so there's theories out there and I'm not a big theory person. I'm all practice, but my boots tell me that it's the youth and people of color who are dying and getting the overdoses that I see. And that is also what uh, the data is showing. So basically by us enabling them, we're creating a hazard environment yeah. where people are dying because of what we think is advocacy arm reduction, if you will, is absolutely 180 from what we should be doing, correct? Yeah, well, the national news just said, what, last week, the number one cause of death in the age of 18 to 35-year-olds was fentanyl. And now we're seeing a fentanyl explosion at the border, like oh. an incredible amount. Wow. Yeah, so. And when you think about the term harm reduction, by the way, I'm an alcohol and drug counselor. There's a lot of housing first, harm reduction housing. It's a very popular model right now. Actually has been for about 10, 12 years. The idea is house them first, whether if they're, even if they're in the middle of their addiction, whatever. And then, in theory, work with them on the recovery once in housing when they're getting their basic needs met, they're comfortable, they're safe, they're hopefully happier. The biggest flaw in this by far is that once they're in the housing, they're almost completely ignored. There's no effort on the actual reduction. So there's no follow-up. There's no follow-up. Harm reduction really is with housing is just hide them. Let them use as much as they want in the housing, then everybody is happy. Basically, apparently. you forget about them. You forget about them without an effort. In my opinion, there should be more of like an understanding or a contract saying, we're going to get you this housing. It's going to be for free. But once in the housing, you need to work with us on actively working on your recovery. Meaning rules. Yes. Not necessarily today. We get it. You're going through a lot. Let's get you into the housing. But you have to at least agree to make an effort <laughs> towards reducing the habit. And so let's just say that they don't make the effort, then what happens? They end up, usually they live there for life on the county's dollar or they die. They die. It's really, there's only two options, sadly. Yeah, there's several folks that are in the hotels from the parks. You know, that's a thing in Seattle. I have clients in several of the hotels and I'm like, dude, you get your ID yet? Do you get a job? You have your meth? No. Did you get a phone no. yet? No. no. Can you get me one? No. Can you get me some cigarettes? I'm like, no. Yeah. Now, why aren't these housing programs kicking like them out? Now it's 10 months Take in, millions of dollars in these hotels. Nobody's progressing. Some are progressing. 
I'm not saying that there weren't success stories and that people accepted rapid rehousing, but the fact that a young man identifying with his LGBTQ population, so in the higher vulnerability pool, doesn't have enough case management or resources or self-advocacy or some combination of both, that in 10 months in a four and a half star hotel in downtown can't get a cell phone and at least his vital documents ordered or some drug and alcohol treatment. He said no to all four of those. And that's our Lehigh program. That's incredible. And I have people working on the inside that are like, there's rooms at these hotels that look worse than your most. Imagine the most worst encampment scatter are now in hotel rooms. Coffee's being poured down the key card access system so that now it's a revolving door and the key card security system doesn't work. In and out. So now you've just got every single person revolving into that hotel room to take a shower, which is fine. I mean, in some regard, the, the homeless are beating the system. Better than the system is beating the problem. So that's and a two-tier again. We successfully got them into housing, but now we've ignored them and we're just sort of allowing them to die slowly uh, behind closed doors. And now they're going to get kicked back out in the streets because the contracts are coming to an end. And that's the revolving door. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by contracts coming to an end? Um, so in the case of the Six and Spring Hotel, the old Kempton, uh, I think they all have to be out at the end of February. Contracts up. And now they're, the city's going to have to spend how many more millions of dollars to Renovating it. renovate. And then, you know, this is why, you know, we're strong proponents of like the pallet shelters, these easy in, easy out, manufactured right here in Everett, Washington, local made. There's not one tiny house village made of pallet shelters ran by Amy King and her husband. Like something's wrong there that we're not using this very efficient model to get people off the streets. Because one of the rules they have at pallet housing is they require they will not sell pallet housings to a provider unless they agree to wraparound care. What does that mean, wraparound care? Exactly what it's saying. Supportive care, work on the recovery, work on their mental illness. Work That's on all that. why. And that is a strict rule they have. We will not sell to you unless you offer this. And we just find it interesting. Why is there no pallet housing here? She literally has pallet housing in every county in the state of Washington, except for King and all across the country. And with COVID, they became very relevant because you can build these pallet shelters, which are you know, white modular tiny houses sure. without the cute little, you know, windowsill. Sure. Um, there's a project down on Elliott Avenue that is ran by King County. So if you do see them on Elliott, my statement still holds true. That's with the county, but the city of Seattle uh, doesn't have any villages using those, and they're very cheap. I mean, I could take the money in my bank that we've ran, that we've raised, and build a little mini, mini village with that, I'm kind of considering doing that. Like put them up at Skagit Valley for the farmers and help plant tulips. I mean, there's got to be a work program component to all of this. So, you, so again, that goes to, hey, you need buy-in. There's rules here. Yeah. You know, when I drive around, I see all – I see – I see volunteers walking around with some vests on, picking up the garbage, kind of like the way you started, right? That's one aspect of it. But in reality, that visual is an example of what we're up against. And why can't we have the people that we're trying to put into housing, right? Why can't we have them pick up garbage, work? 
Community That's service. part of the rules. Community service. Community service. Treatment. Color. Yoga. Meditation. Four hours of something per week. That's the Bybee Lakes Hope Center. That Keep them busy. Just something. Yeah, we get a lot of people that are living in the tiny houses and hotels calling, can I come out with you? This is so rewarding. It gives me something to do. It's not structured. We want to, we're trying to actually work with no, some of you know. Yeah, imagine everyone that we've currently have housed today in Seattle in a motel. That's, say, we're paying for 100%. If they're required to do four hours a week of volunteering, imagine that workforce. That's a big workforce. Yep. Imagine just the change you would see almost overnight for so a what very would, minimal expectation. What would the what would the detractors say? You're you are you are housing's a right. You should not have to do anything for a basic need. And it's why I caught shade very early on, as I said, something to affect January 1st out at Miller Park when well-intended folks were grilling hamburgers all around a big pile of trash, you know? And yeah. like I said, you know, I, how can they ask them to clean the park first? I don't know. I just said it in a little flippant way and I could have rephrased it and gotten myself out of a lot of hot water. But even the showering, I mean, there's countries around the Third world countries, you see little news clips every once in a while. Some small country in Bangladesh gets cleaned up because they were, everyone brought in a bag of trash to get you know a week's worth of food. Yeah, It's very basic. It's evolving society. The way the politics are is devolving society. We're devolving. We're seeing it play out here. Okay. Um, came across this, crit, uh, this clip of you, Kevin. It's basically a city of Gresham... Um, homeless services, a bridge to something better. And this particular point here in the clip that I found compelling, and we'll, uh, we'll listen to it, break it down. Um, uh, always led with compassion in this issue. Um, our residents want to be very compassionate, but they also want to protect their livability and they want to protect their neighborhoods. And we've um, held the line very firmly on livability and we've equally held it as uh, in compassion and helping people. And um, we've housed uh, over a hundred people just in the last uh, six, seven months. Uh, the Springwater Trail, our portion of it in Gresham is completely clear. Um, I'm on it three or four times a week and I know lots of our residents are. They appreciate that. Um, they love it. They're using it uh, as the amenity that it's supposed to be um, and not um, a crime trail, which is what it once was. So we're um, thankful that um, we've been able to get out uh, in, in on the trail, uh, protect it, uh, protect our livability, and more importantly, get people the much needed help that they, that they need and are requiring to help themselves. One thing that we have doubled down on, uh, our, our group has, and that is their just absolute tenacity to help people. They know um, most of the people in the city uh, that are homeless. They know them by name. They know their story. And they're just doggedly trying to help them uh, to get the help that they need. And I think that's where we're starting to see some great success in the community. So, you know, I think that highlights, obviously, the work that you were involved with down there. And it seems to be like what was once a place ravaged by crime where people really can't go and enjoy the amenities of quality of life in society. You guys have turned it around with what? Accountability. Yep. And, and, and compassion. And that was, um, that was mayor Shane Bemis. He's our former mayor. Now we have another new awesome mayor, 
Mayor Stovall. Okay. What inspired me to join the city of Gresham was this mayor we just watched wrote a letter to all citizens. And in the letter, he was talking about our homeless issues in the region. And what he said was there is nothing compassionate about allowing a homeless person to live on the streets. And oh my God, that spoke to me. And I realized he was the only mayor I had ever heard of with the courage to say that. And I was so inspired, I wrote the mayor a letter. A lengthy letter with really kind of a, almost a nine, about a nine point plan, how to reduce homelessness. And I wasn't really looking for a job. I just wanted to offer my input, my expertise. And I was so inspired. Um, I lived in the community and I was like, this is amazing. Wrote him the letter. I was brutally honest because also I was talking about the system as we're doing now and being critical, saying, hmm, you might be relying on possibly the wrong people. You're on the right path, but maybe here's some ideas. Long story short, he invited me to City Hall a few weeks later. So he read it? Yes. A few weeks later, I was hired to work there. To like, all right, do what you say you're going to do. That's pretty cool. And we did. So it's kind of cool because it was a job I never applied for. And that was the catalyst, which basically before, you know, you guys linked up, right? So that leads to the part one that we had. So when we talk about, you know, the connection you guys have through accountability and not enabling people. Like you show them love through holding them accountable. And that you, all these stories are coming out of, obviously I played one with Josh and uh, success stories. And one of them is, uh, you know, I remember just what is it, November, and we'll play a piece of this, but the lawnmower man creating a situation we basically highlighted in the part one of this. But just to give the audience um, a window, just to recapture this conversation, we'll play it here in just a second. We'll also have a link with your City of Gresham YouTube video that we just pushed, and we'll have a link on this one, too. New tonight, neighbors in Northwest Ballard accuse a homeless person of making threats and blasting music at all hours of the day. They say the city isn't helping, so now they say they're going to take legal action if he doesn't stop. Thomas Jonathan Cho has more in this Project Seattle report. You cannot come out here and harass people. This is Charles Woodward. Neighbors call him Lawnmower Man because he has so many laid out on the sidewalk at the corner of 8th Avenue Northwest and 49th Street in Ballard. Every time they ask him to turn down the loud music or noise, neighbors say he goes off. I'm allowed to make noise at night just like they are. Neighbor Kelly Davidson says the loud music, grinding metal, and the annoying hum of a generator doesn't seem to care. Keeps her up at night. So we'll just pause it right there. So you guys came in with that and we heard you know the news anchor talking about neighbors with legal action like what kind of legal action is going to move the needle here i'm not quite sure but you guys came in saw the problem and immediately solved to a degree this situation and so what has been the result well i'll put it in the link right now you've got a picture of lawnmower man what's his first name charles we have a picture of charles a complete 180 from the demeanor he had in that Como piece where he's absolutely smiling and he appears to be cleaning a planning strip. And then I've got another picture of him. It's another one that I'll put in the description of him in a <laughs> We Heart Seattle jacket. Mm-hmm. So describe to me that process with Charles because, again, it's an example of you caring 
still holding somebody accountable for being unreasonable, right? That was unreasonable, his demeanor. Absolutely. Ca- causing our community a problem where they're talking about legal services, like legal challenges. Like, okay, that's a big deal. It's thousands of dollars attorney fees. You guys went in there. Describe it to me. Well, I'll, I'll start and then she can get to when we actually met him. We were driving around a couple months ago, just talking about everything. And Andrea and I had watching the news stories on Law and Man as everyone. We didn't know his full name or anything. And Andrew's like, let's go talk to him. Let's go meet him right now. So awesome. Right now. And we were with uh, Tracy, one of our employees. And we're like, sure. Let's just go talk with him to see how it goes. We were pretty confident because we have a good approach. And we were really curious. And we were pretty confident there's no way he's going to treat us this way. Right? Because we have an approach and we felt like he would probably respond pretty favorably to us. So drove around for a bit and found him and then stopped the car and got out and what happened? Yeah. So another woman who was with us uh, was volunteering that day through Seattle Municipal Courts Community Service Program. So okay. We Heart Seattle is also on the platform for people to volunteer to burn off tickets and other um, dues owed to the court. So I just think I just want to throw that out there that we're also helping people mitigate their court fees. We, we drove up and Tracy hopped out of the car and approached Charles and she just said, "Look, I'm I'm looking for Mr. Woodward," and he goes, uh, "I might know who that is," and she goes, "Okay." And then I came around the block and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's him." And she goes, "You you were BSing me," and you and she got mad and then they started chuckling, and within about five minutes they were hugging and laughing and she you know he reminded her of, um, you know her old boyfriend Carl and he kind of reminded me of Bad Santa. Yeah, you know. You've got, you've got that. We'll put a link here. It's from Cairo as well. It's um, the way you described it. So this comes from Joe. Uh, Suarez found him to be, quote, grumpy and mean, but his heart is there too, somewhere deep down, unquote. And then it continues with, Suarez says Woodward laughed when she told him, quote, you remind me of bad Santa in jail, unquote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> he, he, well, I said, I said, you know, you remind me of Billy Bob Thornton. He goes, yeah, in prison, they called me bad Santa. The cigarette hanging. He goes, and so now when we talk, which is daily, he's like, don't make me be, don't break out bad Santa. You better get down here right now and solve my problems. And so I got to set boundaries with Charles. Um, but we have been providing daily case management. We went through a brutal, absurd, lengthy uh, housing application process um, through the affordable housing program, and we were this close, and it just fell through, like so many applications do. And it was frustration on his end, on my end, on the provider's end. Um, People were fired. The holidays came. COVID came. He was hoping to be moved in at the end of December, and Things just kind of, I mean, he got triggered and mad and I was mad and we're going to go find a different place. But the moral of the story was we connected with him. We had an immediate solution. I found out that he was signed up through Uplift Northwest and he goes, you want to put me to work right now? And I go, absolutely. And so within an hour of meeting him, he actually had a job and he was already getting paid through Uplift Northwest with my account I had with him. Through your work. Yeah. Like right as soon as I knew he was already signed up for Uplift, I'm like, now you can help clean up your whole block and I'll pay you. Can you describe uh, to the audience what Uplift is? Uplift Northwest is formerly the Millionaires Club, a hundred year old uh, second chance, 
second chance employer that's down on Western Avenue in Belltown. Uh, very low barrier. You can pretty much have anything on your record, including uh, registered sex offenders can even still get a job through them. You know, they're registered and able to contribute to society. So I think that's important to mention. Uh, they don't do UAs, but you do have to show up to work sober. But, you know, it's all about giving people a second chance, uh, day labor, stadium work, and we bring people in to come around and pick litter. So we're gradually scaling so that it, while we're still 99% volunteer-led, we do uh, employ some of the folks that we've <clears throat> gotten out of the tents. We have them go get signed up there. So really, really wonderful organization led by Executive Director Gina Hall. That's fantastic. We'll put a link in the description. Um, did you ever ask him? And I'm not making fun of him. I just found it fascinating that he was obsessed to a degree with lawnmowers. What is it with what is it with lawnmowers and him? The more I'm around him, I would say there's, you know, no, you're not supposed to talk about this, but we are in a state of emergency and we need to figure out what's going on with people on the streets. Yes, but it's, crisis. It's like Asperger's kind Got of. It. And I think about my obsession now with trash and i think i might have a little bit of that too or he and i get together in the truck and he's like i need gas he always needs gas and i'm always like there's trash and so together he actually just got approved to be our driver he's now insured and uh that's so cool he's dying to get in my van he's like that's my van and i don't know if he really sounds like that (laughs) well you know what that again it just and the reason why i bring it part of this discussion i know we touched on the part one but i just when you and i connected after you know we released podcast one it was like some of the feedback we got and then you had reached out to mr woodward and i just thought it was really compelling and that you through accountability and compassion we heart seattle like you gave this guy an opportunity Right. I mean, yeah, you identify he's got some something going on with him mentally, which is, an, you know, he's got an affliction towards like lawnmowers or something mechanical. Mm-hmm. And that was music. his comfort and music. Mm-hmm. But you reached out as a human being. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I will it's also just, say that it's incredible. I hear it from guys like Josh all the time. Lead by example. And I'm not just showing up there doing drive by outreach or again, throwing some socks out there, telling them where they can go sign up for services. I'm over there in my filthy boots with my rake, raking with him, loading the truck, loading the U-Haul. I've had so many homeless people just be like, oh my God, you know, you're a immortal. Yeah, no, your energy is pretty crazy. And Kevin, so, you had the same energy. I can, yep. yep. And <clears throat> let me back up really quick. Uh, right before we talked to Charles, we parked and debriefed. We're like, hmm. We watched all the videos and realized there's got to be a better approach. To him. So we put ourselves in his shoes, right? He's feeling judged by everyone around him, being criticized for all his admittedly poor behavior. One thing we couldn't do is call him out on the behavior right away. That would make him defensive. Yes. So we knew about the loud music and all the problems and stuff, but we knew that was the last thing we needed to do in the beginning. Beginning was to build trust kind of develop that sort of friendship, you know, that respect. Well, you basically described de-escalating. Yep. We De-escalation. Did, yes. You did. And 100%. So we approached in a very non-judgmental way and says, hey, wow, great to meet you. How are you? Andrea, Kevin, Tracy, what's going on? Very friendly, upbeat, you know, good energy, right? And then over, you know, we were there for hours at night. I think we helped 
clean trash late hours in the night. I mean, it was, I mean, well, it was it, pitch dark. It was winter, right? So we yep. got there at about two and we were wrapped right. up by six. And the, I was really charmed when neighbors were walking by saying, thank you, thank you. And he was kind of like, still a little not ready to talk to the neighbors, but he goes, these people are helping me pick up my trash and hauling it out. I mean, he respected the hard work. I think that is also with the model of cleaning. It's the bond. It's just finding, getting respected and not oh, yeah. just another same old, and nothing against all the hardworking people that have been doing this for decades that are trained to talk a certain way, be a certain way. But we were, we were great at de-escalating. And we were also trauma-informed care, the two pieces of work together. And good outreach. And we put him in charge. We're like Charles in charge. We made Charles in charge of our day. And he's like, yeah, you can like take that. Like, you can take that. I'm like, can we take this? He's like, yep. no. And he's like, all so right, take that. Every time we ask permission. So what do we do now? No, Charles, what's the next step? What about this? No, no, no. I don't want this. What about here? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Kept him involved. And he really liked that, that we weren't just steamrolling him. And so over the next few hours, finally, he just kind of gave up that control and said, just take it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. But in the beginning, we kind of helped. He was a big part of it. Yeah. So I, you're describing, and you guys, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, if, if we were to take what you're doing and then compare it to the services that are available that have been millions of dollars worth, what would one thing what would be one thing that you want to see change to maybe impact the services in a positive way that could emulate what you're doing? What, what would be the first thing for you to do? I mean, you, you use compassion, empathy, and accountability for Mr. Woodward Lawnmower Man. You de-escalated it. You met him at his level where you guys built a bond. You didn't have law enforcement there, right? You led with courage. So what would it, what would it be? Boom. Courage. Not being afraid of him, not being afraid of what you heard, being able to go into an encampment and not be scared of the needles. You know, you've brought that up a couple times. I mean, we've got our fleet of volunteers trained to pick up a needle carefully and, you know, how to be around that. And so if everybody had just a little bit more courage, um, I think we could Yep. manage the crisis a little bit better. Even our community, and this is a message to the community, this is a community crisis as well. Time and time again, Andrea, will you come walk 56? Will you come check out this? Will you come check out that? I won't do it unless they're willing to walk through it with me. It's awesome. It's good buy-in. Yeah. He's like, I'm not going to just go out there and solve your community problem. This is a community engagement. Right, so what you just said right there is that you're taking that type of direction. You're giving feedback to the community member who's complaining about an issue. Mm -hmm where he says, no, you need to have buy-in here. You need to show up, which is awesome. It's the same tactic, strategy that you're putting on the homeless people in the, in the system, whereas you need buy-in here. Everybody's got to get all Everybody hands Everybody has on to deck. have buy-in. Everyone. Now, one thing the entire- That's it, right there. Yep. I think we just solved the problem. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> so in terms of, like, I want to roll in police into this. So uh, how many times have you had police there on a litter pick just because of safety concerns or why would police be there? Like what's, what, what can we do? Cause you're a community member and your tax dollars pay for police services here in the city. What, be critical, please. Like what can we do to assist your incredible work to try to 
then I've used the tag Seattle is worth saving. Yeah. What can we do to assist? Because we, we have the NAV team. We have armed police to assist social workers services in case there's a criminal problem or a safety issue. I mean, going back to courage, I would just say part of what makes Kevin and I successful, and I know you use police. I mean, you're a city employee. I'm still a volunteer. I can't exactly, I feel like I can't call SPD and say, can you come out with me in this camp? I don't want to go alone. I can usually find a volunteer to go with me. But it is showing up without police that allow the homeless to trust me quite a bit more. They're like, oh my gosh. I mean, I've been out. I think I remember telling you, I was out like at midnight one time, don't tell my husband, Came back from the airport, pulled over. It was like people were frying bacon, working on cars. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to come do a cleanup here in a couple of days. And they're like, all right. And I'm like, I came back in a couple of days. They're like, you're crazy. <laughs> and I was like, you got to have courage. Yeah. And the reason why they're, they're distrustful is maybe I'm, I'm, I'm going to have my opinion on that. It's because, number one, they've, they've got warrants possibly. They're running away from something or they've got illegal well, activity yeah, I mean, going on, right? Dexter and, and Mercer camp, Desi comes up to me and she goes, hey, I'm a convicted violent felon. And I'm like, great, I want you on my team. You want to pick some litter and cover me? <laughs> Give her something. To, and she's it, like, yeah. And I'm going to take that because if, if it's okay and if we don't, we can we can look at this. But I remember come walking to you into Danny Park my first time, meeting with you and then going through and connecting with people. It was my demeanor. And God was in plain clothes. Mm-hmm. And she immediately picked up on who the hell I was. She didn't know my face or that. That's Mike, you know, what a Mike Solon know. Mm-hmm. It was just the fact that the way I carried myself screamed cop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that day vividly. And yeah, people like Josh um, are on the streets. They're street smart. They know yeah, the they demeanor. Pick up on it. And I, I come out a little bit fearless. Maybe I'm a little reckless. I mean, knock on wood. I mean, I know Kevin's been hospitalized, stabbed, guns held to his head in his career. Knock on wood. I haven't had that yet. Um, but God forbid, the, I hope you know, I mean, happen. how does the police, how do the police, I mean, like today, uh, I met the supervisor of the community police team, Kelly, I don't remember her last name, but she runs the community police division. That's a non-armed more, a softer approach to doing outreach and addressing okay. community concerns. And I called her today and I was like, Kelly, can you meet me out at this encampment on first and clay? This is a great way for us to collaborate. It's in my neighborhood. The neighbors called in four tents on a private property. Let's not call nine one one. And she said, Andrea, I'd love to, but I'm not allowed to go to encampments. That's only for the hope team. I'm like, but wait, I thought you were the unarmed version of policing. So that's alternative supposed to, form of policing. supposed to make everybody happy you're in not you're not in a, the same typical uniform you're in a white unmarked car can't it she goes nope i cannot go to encampments and i just like she goes i can't because it doesn't follow the mdars the multi-department rules that the city set up which is paralyzed our city so i my end game i know you're gonna ask me eventually what i want to get out now is to sit at the table with mayor harrell and his team and get a private funded private out of the system voice to help change the policy, change the MDARs, change the fact that SPR is not, the parks aren't clean on slopes, change that the community police can't work on encampments. We all need to work together and come back and return some version of the navigation team. Otherwise, it really is unsafe, and I am a ticking time bomb of getting hurt. Um, In that same vein with those four tents, Kevin and I went out there this morning. We 
knocked on their door. They came out and it happened to be four young adults who were staying across the street at a, I don't want to dox them, but I will just say they were near at a nearby youth shelter. And I go, you guys are setting up tents during the day because you don't have nothing to do, right? And they're like, yeah, we get kicked out during the day. So this is, again, that phenomenon that we saw again today, four tents taking up an entire block on private property because the kids don't have anything to do all day. There's a, and I want to tell Bruce Harrell that, like, dude, we, and Mark Dones, you're spending millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. You've got to have a program component in exchange for shelter. Yeah, work. I, like I said, I don't care if it's coloring, no. art, meditation, church. Let's just start picking up trash. Go, don't, go yeah. volunteer at the Humane Society, yeah. PAW, read a book to the elderly. There's a million ways to volunteer. It doesn't have to be trash. But you can't ha- have anything to do all day, especially, you know, they end up with these tents everywhere. And then you're like, wait a minute. And then we're going to go take the pit and we're going to count that there's four people in the shelter and then there's four people in the tent and we're going to double how many homeless people we think we have. And that leads to the data pool. That leads to more money, more like fleecing of our... Tax base. Like talked right? about last month with Denny Park, 64 tents. Some people thought represented 110 plus people when there was actually 12 to 15 people at Denny Park because they were counting the tents, not the heads. Okay, so who's they? Who are, who are they counting? Who is they that's counting, I should say? Well, I guess the point in time count is the county is in charge of it. The pit is actually happening right now. Happens yearly. And it was canceled last year due to COVID. And our biggest concern, of course, is there's going to be an overcount. You know, and the pit is the numbers we rely on for out, throughout the entire year to for funding purposes. And if you're counting tents, not heads, you're going to count. <laughs> yeah, we kind of we talked about that in part one a bit. There's an, you or can four add, in the shelter, four here, yeah. or four in the RV, going back to the yeah. kids. We followed them around because I gave them a wrong card and they looked at me again. They go, you promise you're not going to call the police on us? And I said, I promise you. And they go, we're going to move at the end of the day, you know? And I said, okay. But they, that's the kind of the missing link as a kind of a private mm. outreach. I knew Kelly had my back. If I had to, of course I can call 911 if I felt in danger, but they, they were willing to work with us because of the way we approached them. And also we we're like, you are on private property. You will get trespassed. Yeah, then that would become a police issue because and, they're breaking the law. You know, and the, the business owner called us to, to be a buffer. And that's what we've been doing for a year and a half. And I'd like the city to acknowledge our work. We've probably, Mike, saved the city at least $10 million. What we've done is, in fact, priceless because they can't put price tags on the 450,000 pounds of trash we've cleaned out of city parks that the city contracts aren't allowed to do due to safety and OSHA concerns. It's incredible, the red tape. It's in, it's, now you've heard about the scandal with the Clean Cities Initiative contracts. They're all botched. Eric Barnett covered it, called out all these contracts that didn't follow different uh, protocols. protocols. And uh, they got in trouble when the superintendent stepped down. Donna Waters got a demarcation in her file so they they got in hot water and parks is kind of slowly starting to come around like okay andrea we're we'll get to those we see you we'll get to it in a few days and so you know i also talked to council member lewis like we are here to stay we're not going anywhere so like can you you know when are we yeah that goes into our you know 
obviously you're describing some of the hurdles that you deal with. What do you think that they can, they're trying to do to sh- are they trying to shut you guys down? We are definitely still the thorn of the side of the city. I think but if we have some friendly why is that, that work, Kevin? Is it because you're actually are, getting work done? We're, we're you dis- just briefly described it. We are disrupting the system. We are doing it differently, and in this system, people hate different. It's not okay to be different. Problem is, is that we tried it your way and it didn't work, so let's be different. Let's try something different. That's all it is. It's not personal. We're not trying to attack anyone. We want to work with everybody. We are just saying that we've seen how funding has grown every year as have the homeless population, which means maybe money isn't necessarily the solution. So let's think about this in a more holistic But if you're if, if you're producing results on 99% volunteer basis then absolutely you're a threat to that money base and people's positions. Well, it's true because, you know, if we were in charge, I really think we could end this humanitarian crisis. And the fact is a lot of people would probably be out of work because we wouldn't need them in this homeless industrial complex. There's a lot of people employed, I hate to say, aren't really making a difference every day. And I think that is a big concern. I don't want anyone to lose their jobs, but this is a humanitarian crisis and it's not personal. Our number one goal is to end this, clean up every piece of trash in the city and just simply end this crisis, get everybody off the streets because you know what? It benefits everyone if that happens. Quality of life. Benefits them. Society. Benefits the community, benefits everybody, mm-hmm. period. And let the chips fall where they may. What's the end result? What we'll have in place is now the system, which will be retention and preventative care. Keep the people off the streets. Prevent people from ever going to the streets. That system will always need to be in place. But what we need to disrupt is the current industrial complex that keeps the system the way it is and continues to grow every year. I was going to ask you, why are you doing this? But you just clearly crushed it with that. So it's just obviously compelling. And there. one thing I will go ahead, Andrew. Oh, I was just going to say like the passion, um, it's a cause, not a job. And I think Kevin is hardwired from hardwired for this line of work without social service training. I've been hardwired for it. Um, I'm sure you see that in policing. There's mm-hmm. oh, just yeah. people that are born uh, to serve. It's a, it's a, it's a calling. Mm-hmm. And my end game here is just to, can, if you feel you're, you're still looking for that purpose in life or finding your calling, take a, take a chance on trying something new because one little step has led to this huge movement and anybody's welcome and anyone can start their own movement, but to join and to consider being civically engaged because the more people we get volunteering and working on their neighborhood improvement, working on their block, adopting their block, neighborhood watching, bringing that back into society, which has been dormant, I think, for decades will help bring Seattle back much like New York did. That was all about these, you know, what was a dozen area improvement districts, citizen led or more formally like we have in Soto or Ballard to, you know, your person next door making a daily difference. Everybody can make a daily difference. I'm just a girl next door, really not so much anymore, but still am at heart, but anybody can do it. Well, you just described what courage is through leadership. 
one thing we'll wrap up here with, we've been going at it for hour and 20. Um, this was posted on your Facebook page and what's your Facebook page again? We heart Seattle. And this was posted on the 26th is basically you encapsulating what is, what appears to be like a, a cleanup in literally 30 seconds of the, of the incredible work you did. And I'll just play it for the people. Yeah. yeah. It's a 10 minute cleanup, you know, so where is this? This is in Upper Woodland Park. Currently by the zoo. Shut down to society. You know, the cross country team can't use it. The yes. most people aren't using it. This isn't sped up. We actually work that fast. <laughs> this is how we did this. <laughs> well, you're superhuman, man. But, um, That's pretty cool. It's you with your volunteers. All that work. There's just four of us on that day on that particular scatter. There's those scatters are all over our city. I just say, if you, instead of see something, say something, I say, see something, do something. Do something. You know, these are the best tools right here at your hands. I mean, we're not using fancy bulldozers and I mean, we're using $20 U-Hauls and physical labor and get your friends together. We're working with high schoolers to fulfill their community service requirement. I mean, where are the CrossFit teams, the football teams, the basketball teams, the athletes? I mean, there's a lot more fit people than me out there that could help pick garbage. So hopefully more people will come out and do it. Well, that's a good, that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, you know, you mentioned about your safety and that you're a ticking time bomb here. You know, I think that's where the police element comes in and then developing that trust in the, in, in, in the scatters you go to or the homeless outreach that people that you connect with, I hope nothing happens to you. You're a leader in this community. I respect the hell out of you, Kevin. I respect the hell out of you. You guys have just led through example. And you're waking this city up, the Pacific Northwest. And I think we've had a great conversation. And I think this leads to a third podcast where we bring on uh, a sergeant within the NAV team to talk about the specific police interest with the homeless industrial complex and how we can try to figure out a path of coordination with your work and to just tell our community how they can lead with courage, with assistance through you guidance, but they've got to get involved and then build back that trust in the police service. Thank you for, thank you for what you guys do and for taking the time today. Any last parting words on behalf of you? Sounds like a plan. Um, I would like to, just give Mike a shout out that a lot of our followers who reviewed the first podcast um, commended you on your professionalism, your demeanor, being a great interviewer, and that really humanized you. And there's just an overwhelming amount of feedback that came through as you as an individual being quite misunderstood. So keep up the good work. Oh, that's really cool. I guess got chills again, Andrea. You keep on doing that. Thank you. That's, that means a lot, actually. We're hearing this all over Oregon, too. So we got a lot of good feedback. Excellent. Well, you know what? I wouldn't be able to do this without people like you in the community. So the credit's to you. Hey, so thanks for watching. Hold the line with Mike Solon. I want to, again, shout out We Heart Seattle, Andrea Suarez and Kevin Dahlgren. Um, I really like the last little closing bit with Andrea's comment that, hey, people that are in the community, you see something, do something, get involved. It's up to us to change our course here. We can do it. 
And we heard Seattle is leading by example and showing us that we all can do something. Thanks for watching. Expect episode three within a few months as we got much more to discuss because Seattle is worth saving. Thanks, everybody.